Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. Hi. One of the pastors here. And this morning, I have to ask for your forgiveness ahead of time. Because I'm going to try something different. I'm going to sing to you. Okay. Thank you. I need it up front. That'll help me. Here we go. I think it's a familiar tune. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. I had that tune in the back of my mind when I was walking into a Kmart when I was a high schooler buying my first non-Christian music album, Pearl Jam 10. <laughs> kind of looked up, looked up at the clouds before I walked in with my eight bucks or whatever it cost. It's an interesting song, isn't it? Most of us have heard that many times. It was sung in all of my Sunday schools growing up, and I think that it conveys a truth that we can easily find in the scriptures, and yet the wording is profound. The verb is something worth really paying attention to. Be careful. When do we use that language? I remember this time of year growing up in southeastern Wisconsin, we often had a skim of ice over the Fox River. It was awesome to climb up into a tree and throw the old Halloween pumpkins onto that thin ice that would actually make waves through the ice as it crashed through. But as we did, what did my mother say? Be careful. Camping, when I'd go camping, every kid loves to take an old stick and cook one end of it in the fire until it's glowing and then wave it around in everybody's face, you know? I have a torch. Be careful, my dad would shout down. Be careful, that'll burn you. My dad and I growing up, one of our favorite Saturday pastimes was getting our 22s, walking down the train tracks, shooting pop cans and whatever we could find along the train tracks. But every time I loaded up the clip on my little Ruger 1022 and I started pointing at that stuff, what did the old man say? Be careful. We really only use that language in terms of significant danger, don't we? Significant danger. Is God dangerous to us? Is life with God something to dread? Something to be perpetually anxious about? How many Christians actually find life with God and life within the church to actually be one of the most taxing, difficult, and even painful experiences of an already painful life? I don't think I have to look far to find that, and you know my story a little bit already, and that was my upbringing. Life is brutal and difficult, and people don't treat you like a person. 
And oftentimes, church communities became even worse. Charles Dickens, 132 years ago, Charles Dickens is commenting on life in Victorian England. He wrote this. Sunday comes and it brings with it a day of general gloom and austerity or strictness. The man who has been toiling hard all the week has been looking toward the Sabbath, but not as a day of rest from labor and healthy recreation, but as one of grievous tyranny and grinding oppression. The day which his maker intended as a blessing, man has converted into a curse. Now, of course, Dickens is talking about church in his time and in his place. So we'll be careful to not draw a straight line comparison to Old Testament Sabbath or even the text where we'll read today in Mark chapters 2 and 3 on Sabbath. So we can't just say they're equal But there are some comparisons, I think, that are fair. If it's true that God gave Sabbath as a gift, a day of rest from our labor and toil, a day of healthy recreation, a day to join and worship together, I think there's a parallel to our Sundays, sometimes our patterns of life together as Christians, these times given by God for refreshment and restoration and relief. What an awful and yet eerily familiar thought then to corrupt this great gift to mankind, this day to rest peacefully and to enjoy life with God and his creation, to gather and worship, to take a respite from the usual pains and sufferings and corruptions of this world, to enjoy Longer than average naps in the afternoon. What a, what a horrible thing it would be to corrupt that and twist it into something else. You might say, how could a person take a God-given gift of life and peace, shalom, and instead turn it into stress? Growing up, for me, Sunday mornings were probably the worst time of the week. It was when there was the most anger on the front end of the day. In between rising and finally arriving at church was extremely stressful. There was a lot that needed to be done. Buttons and shine shoes and ties and all of the things that were necessary to make sure that our outward projection of a perfect family was there. I had to be cautious about everything I said. 99% of what happened at home during the week was not to be spoken about. Instead, I was to speak in general Christianese phrases. Sunday was a weird day for me. It was hard, difficult. I resonate with Dickens in, in thinking that it was often this time of oppression, grinding tyranny. How did it get that way? How does that happen? This is the question that we'll wrestle with today. We've been in a series on Mark for a long time. We'll still be in it. Today I want to talk about that question. How do we come to this place where we take a great gift of God and twist it and distort it? I think there's two basic ways that we'll apply as potential answers to that question in this text. So one way is that we add on to a simple a simple statement or a simple command that God gives us. 
One way to corrupt life with God is to unnecessarily add on to what God instructs. This is when we turn human-created traditions into divine law, the way that it has to be according to God, or else, you know, and that's the stress, that or else piece. You might think of this as an example. God says to us, write this word on your hearts, and we add on something like, write only his 1611 King James Version on your hearts. That's kind of an add-on to a basic principle that could be relatively constraining. Another way, the second way that we're thinking might be what's happening in these texts is that we totally misinterpret God's word at the core level. We misinterpret the overall story of the Bible. We don't actually hear or see what God is trying to do and we zero in on certain pieces of it and miss it. We think of him as one whose number one goal was to come and give us law instead to give us life. What did God give us? What did he breathe into us? What is it that he's interested in renewing within us? What is it that Jesus rises into? I think it's new life. Sometimes we mistake the core message of the Bible and we think that it's about other things. He is he's one who kind of becomes somebody who's only far out there and he's watching, looking down at our little eyes and our little ears, waiting to drop the hammer of pain in his love. You know, that's how I understood love even in that song. The father up above is looking down in love, but it's the kind of love that's going to absolutely crush you if you step out of line, son. It was just my earliest upbringing. I was made to fear God, not fear him in the healthy way the Bible talks about it, but to be terrified of him. So I want you to pay attention. We'll read these two stories this morning and think about what mistake these religious elite are making. Is the problem that they have just added on too much to a simple instruction, or is it that they have misinterpreted God's word at the core level? So turn with me. We'll be in Mark chapter 2. We'll start in verse 23 and finish the chapter. That's one small story. And then we'll read a second one that comes right after it, the first six verses of chapter 3. So here we are in Mark 2, 23 through 28. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off grains of head, grains of head, sorry, heads of grain, That would be a weird thing to eat. Uh, They were walking through the, the grain fields, breaking off heads of grain to eat. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why? Why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read the scriptures? What David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, the temple, during the days when Abathar was high priest, and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread, the showbread, that only the priests are allowed to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Verse 27, then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of Sabbath. 
So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. I'm reading from the New Living Translation there. Some of yours might say, the Sabbath is made for man, not man made for the Sabbath. It's the same idea. He's trying to reorient what they understand the Sabbath as being and why it was given. Has Jesus just said, I gave you Sabbath as a gift, a gift of refreshment and restoration and relief? He hasn't said that, but I think that that's the idea. These men were genuinely hungry, and they were in human need of some kind of nourishment. And Jesus looks back to this this, uh, uh, scene, sorry, in the Old Testament when David found himself in a similar predicament. He and his companions were exceedingly hungry. And you've got up in the temple on this golden table, 12 loaves of showbread, and it was reserved only for the priests to eat. You weren't supposed to touch that. But here they are in a time of genuine human need for one of the most basic things that we require for staying alive. And he said, yeah, this is a time for that, for that to be second tier. These men need to have something to be nourished by. So Jesus looks back and he said, there's a precedent for what I've just done. This isn't a problem. I haven't broken a law here. The Sabbath was set up to benefit humankind, men and women, deeply loved by God. He didn't make human beings to see if he could persuade them to do certain things on certain days. Hmm, how often do we frame up the Christian life like that? Almost as though, we never think about it that way, but almost as though God created us to see if he could get us to do certain things in certain ways, in certain days, and in certain places, according to a certain law. That'd be a strange God. And I suspect a lot of us actually struggle with the faith because we view God that way. And maybe, if you're like me, you grew up with some really subtle underpinnings, some subtle streams of thinking that have just woven deep into how you view God and our relationship to him. Now, continue on to the next short story here in chapter 3. Let's read this one together. Again, we're in a Sabbath context. Jesus is doing things on the Sabbath. And this has already been a problem as we have been in this series walking through seeing what Jesus is doing. He does very controversial things. It doesn't seem like he does them on accident either. So chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus went into the synagogue again, and he noticed a man with a deformed hand, or a dried up or withered hand. And since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. That's interesting, isn't it? Sabbath day. Time to watch what you're doing. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. And that's the big no-no, isn't it? This is a day where you shall not work. Notice now, pause for a second before we continue. Before anything happens, they have a plan. This day for them offers a weekly litmus test to see who is doing things right and who is not. Whatever Jesus' motives are, it doesn't matter. If he is speeding his car away from Cannon Beach at 20 miles an hour over the limit because there's a tsunami coming, doesn't matter. He broke the law and he needs to pay. You see? The speeding laws that we have are helped to preserve life. And there are certain times that 
it makes a lot more sense to speed, say, away from a tsunami impending. They look at him and they say, no, no matter what he does, no matter uh, what his motives are, and notice, no matter how he does it. So it doesn't matter if he, as he will, just speaks a word, or if he spends the whole day preparing solutions and medicines and reciting incantations and doing medicine dances around, you see? Whatever it is, it doesn't matter if he makes an action in any way regarding this man's withered hand, it's wrong. We already know that ahead of time. It'll be a violation of the no working rule. Well, Jesus, in verse 3, we pick it up again. Jesus says to the man with the deformed hand, come here and stand in front of everybody. (laughs) Isn't that great? The more you read about Jesus, the more you just fall in love with his character. He's a great guy. He gets, up in the, he gets up in the scene, and he knows exactly where they're at. And, and rather than, hey, man, these guys are going to be super irritated if I help you. Let's go back here in the corner. I'll fix you up, and you can get on your way. He's like, hey, bro, come right up here so everybody can see what I'm about to do. Then he turns not just to the whole crowd, but specifically to his naysayers, you know? Hey, guys, you guys who are super irritated with me, watch this. And he says, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? This is a profound question he asks him. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they would not answer him. You see, he's getting into their attitude, isn't he? He's getting into their attitude and what we might call their hermeneutic, their interpretation practices. He's asked them, have you folks read your scriptures? Have you actually paid attention? Do you see what this means? Is this a day that God intended to give life or not? What is the point of this? What are we doing here? Verse 5, he looked around at them. They haven't answered his question. And he looks around at them angrily with deep anger. And he was deeply saddened. The Bible might say deeply distressed or grieved. This was no small thing to him. This wasn't a minor annoyance, a simple thing we kind of got to tweak and change about our community life together. He's deeply saddened in the core of his being. He's angry at the way that this scenario is playing out. He's angry about this attitude that they have. I think there's a ferociousness we have to see here in the Savior. This is not legitimate, and this is not minor. Hold out your hand, he said to the man. And so the man held out his hand, and it was restored. And at once, immediately, the Pharisees went away, and they met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. You feel the tension between these two worlds, Jesus and these religious elite. This is a group of people debating over what the correct reading of the law is. And then the author walks into the room. That's interesting, isn't it? When we were doing our research this week, Pastor Fender made that comment. He said, something happens when the author walks into the room. 
You're all sitting around at your book club talking about, oh, I think he means this. No, I think that he means that. And then the author shows up and it's like, okay, clarity time, you know. Here's what we know for sure. In this case, the author walks in and he says, here's the clarity you're looking for. And the book club says, nope, you're wrong, author. That's not what you meant. And their disagreement with Jesus is so intense that they're willing to kill him. They want to kill him, and they begin to plot to it. Then our interpretation and our application debate is solved. We win. We will just kill Jesus, take him out of the equation. And it makes me wonder where we have killed Jesus in our own worship practices sometimes, where his way is very clear, but it messes up our plans and our preferences and our traditions, and so we just remove Jesus from the equation altogether. Just don't even mind. Jesus sees how human beings have missed the point and used this gift of God to harm one another, and it harms him, and it grieves him, and it causes anger within him. It's not minor. But what is the issue? Is it just, in this specific text we just read, is it just that this man's hand doesn't function well? Most would have understood the law in Jesus' day to be accommodating for somebody who was in desperate need of life-saving. So if the man was truly about to die and Jesus acted to save his life, there probably wouldn't have been much problem toward that, although these guys seem quite hostile. It's hard to say. But if he was in a really life-threatening predicament, that would have been different. But this seems to be told in a way where it was a a problem that the guy had, and it wasn't life-threatening. But Leviticus 21.16 stipulates that such a person, in the condition that this man is, is forbidden to enter the temple and worship there. It just gives you a little cue as to why this was so important to Jesus. I think. I think this is fair. It isn't explicitly clear, but it seems like Jesus is restoring this man so that he can return to the community of fellow worshipers. Mark, in our story thus far, Mark's gospel, he's already shown a scenario where Jesus did the same exact thing, didn't he? He heals the leper, and then he tells the leper, go present yourself to the priests. The reason so, you can be reestablished with the worshiping community of God. Jesus is very interested in things that prevent people from being able to worship God fully. And he seems to be very willing to eradicate those obstacles and those barriers. He doesn't like that, you know? So I think part of the reason this, this withered hand scene is so intense is because by healing him, he's now able to return to the community. It's interesting. I think that the mistake, and I'm going to kind of play my whole hand here to answer our question. I think the mistake that the religious elite have made here, these Pharisees, has something to do with adding on an unnecessary tradition and regarding it as divine law. I think that that's fair, but I don't think that's the real problem. The real problem is missing the point of God's revelation to begin with. They have misinterpreted God's word at a core level thinking that God is way out there above and is looking down with a deep love for his law. 
They became very focused on this and the words and the regulations and the strictures that help us live rightly. We have to be very cautious here to not see the law as in and of itself bad. This is kind of off of last week's sermon, but seeing how we can turn it into something very bad. These people had a very difficult time with God being present in their midst and looking as a fellow human being. This is, I mean, they don't know this yet, but here's God in their midst looking into their own hearts and bringing light to darkness and being able to know exactly what's going on, and they don't like that. There's been safety in hiding behind the things we project, and now here's God right in the midst. And they don't think of the Sabbath in the way that Jesus seems to. Haven't you ever read your scriptures, he says? Do you think this is a day for life or death? Which one do you think? How are you reading your Bibles, guys? I think Jesus would say this is a time for refreshment, restoration, and relief. You might say, well, but pastor, I've been taught that the problem was that they added on too much, that they heaped up a bunch of unnecessary laws on top of the core thing God wanted them to do. Are you saying that that's not a problem? And I'm not. I think that is a problem, and I think that that is present here. At first glance, it's going to look very simply like they have merely added burdensome um, regulations on top of an otherwise simple law. And so we might think that these two stories have a simple lesson to us, which is don't add stuff on to what God simply says. As Protestant Americans, that's a great message because it sort of feeds that we are our, our libertarian freedom idea. That's great. We shouldn't add anything on. We shouldn't have anything else. And then from that perspective, I think we can often discredit all other patterns, liturgies, traditions as unnecessary and pointless because it wasn't commanded. There's no chapter and verse that says we're supposed to do that. I was taught, for instance, to consider baptism as, as a bit of an add-on. It's clearly in the scriptures, but there's no chapter and verse number that says you have to do it. Therefore, if somebody thinks that it's really important or something like that, they're just adding on to God's word. So I was, I was given a vision of the Bible in a, in a very unique way. Looking only for the things that were straight up necessary, clearly commanded, and easily provable according to a chapter and verse. And then anything else was just whatever I wanted. You can think of many of examples like that. But we have to be careful here. And this is, this is what I mean. They clearly have added things on. And I'll say again, I think they've added way too much on. But notice how the Bible sort of reads on this. I want to start with the Exodus actual instruction for Sabbath, and you'll see how God himself and the scriptures themselves add on to that basic principle. So Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11, is this command given. Remember to observe the Sabbath by day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. That's the key word, work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves, even your livestock, and any foreigners living among you, sojourners in the land, anybody living in your midst. You must all observe Sabbath day. 
For, and here's why, because in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Okay, there's your core command that God has given. He re-ups in Deuteronomy, says the same exact thing, but there, rather than saying, do this because God rested on the seventh day, there he says, do this because it commemorates your salvation from Egypt. You remember that this is what we did when you were brought up out of the land. So the two big reasons to follow Sabbath are to remember that God himself lives this way and he sort of built it into the framework of his people and because you are not slaves. Do this because you're not slaves. You've been set free by God to resist the deadly and corrupting obsessions of this world that work to addict you to production and wealth. Okay? So he's given those, but you might say, well, boom, that's enough. That's the principle and that's all we need. Now, anything beyond that is just adding on legalism. Well, perhaps, but look at how Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes much later than the Exodus narrative, doesn't he? Oh, a good long while. Now, think about people, nomadic men and women in the Exodus, wandering around in Sinai. What is work to them? What does it mean to work or to labor? Now you roll to Jeremiah's day and we have a city with walls and gates and commerce and trading, traveling, all kinds of, it's a whole different world. What is work in that day? Well, in Jeremiah 17, 21, we get a cue. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah the prophet is recording. Here's what God says. Listen to my warning. Stop carrying on your trade at Jerusalem's gates on the Sabbath day. Don't do your work on the Sabbath, but make it a holy day. I gave this command to your ancestors. Well, that's interesting. It wasn't verbatim like that, was it? He gave a principle to them that applied in a certain way in that day. But here God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is sort of upping the ante. He's saying, okay, now work looks like this, and so let's get some specific regulations that help you understand how to obey Sabbath in your context. It continues, Nehemiah, he adds on. We, we see in the scriptures the Israelites in that day, they pledged themselves to not buy things from Gentiles or from the, the Jewish people who weren't really living like Jews. They said, we won't buy anything from them on the Sabbath day. And they added on a new one, we'll let the Sabbath will let the year, the seventh year be a year of rest for the whole land, the lands that we're working. And let's add on another thing. Let's cancel all debts on that seventh year. Okay, so the people are trying to make sense of God's simple instruction in their world. And here in the Bible, we see different ways that they added on to it. Three chapters later in Nehemiah, We'll read about the people of God implementing strong measures to prevent trading on the Sabbath, so strong that they shut the gates and keep all the Gentiles and non-Jewish followers outside the gates. That's a great literal way to take, uh, make the people in your midst follow the Sabbath, whether they're sojourners or not. And <laughs> they said, all right, we'll keep all the sojourners out of our midst for that day, and then they don't have to follow the Sabbath, so they kicked them out. 
In Numbers 15, we learn that the punishment for intentionally violating the Sabbath was death by stoning. This isn't a minor instruction. This is a big deal. In Leviticus 4, we learn that unintentional violations required a sin offering. There was a way to atone for this with an offering. Why were these different additions made from the basic instruction? Some might say, and I think this has been a common interpretation, because they were legalistic and, and they, were, they were just crazy. And I think that's probably there a lot. However, in this case, I can't help but to wonder if it's the exact opposite. They actually loved God. They believed that the covenant they had made with him was legitimate and to be followed. And they were trying to submit every part of their life to God's will. And that, if you've ever tried to do that, is not super simple. <laughs> it's kind of complex. You have to, you're always asking these questions. Is this the right thing? Is this not the right thing? And as the time continued and the world changed, they had to figure out new ways to follow the same God according to the unchanging law that he had given, the commandment. Think especially in terms of when they were exiled. Imagine being yanked out of our whole culture, having it totally destroyed and pulled as slaves into somewhere else. You can't worship God. There's no church buildings anymore. There's no Sunday services. All Half of the stuff that we do in our life together is just not possible anymore. They had to figure out how to live. Some of the Sabbath rules in this time, as we kind of move up toward Jesus, did get burdensome and intense. You can, read, you can read places where it says on Sabbath, we never brush the crumbs off of our table. It's too much work. Or it won't hurt anything if I just darn the sock. You know, looking at this is acceptable, this is not acceptable, always answering the question of what is work? What does that consist of? And as you look at the different ways that Jewish communities around the world have tried to interpret that, you're looking to the Pharisees as men in the community who helped them live, but their different communities did different things, adapting, trying to figure out how to live for God. Some of the additions became petty and burdensome. Some of them were helpful and good. By Jesus' day, though, you quote work, this word, which is the core of the Sabbath question, it has been organized in their laws under 39 different headings, 39 different categories of work, literally thousands of regulations on Sabbath. Four of those headings were reaping, winnowing, threshing, and preparing a meal. And Jesus and his disciples just violated all four, didn't they? <laughs> Okay, so there is an adding on problem that's going on, and you might say, I thought you said that wasn't the core issue, Ben. You've just made quite a compelling case that that was the issue. Again, I think the answer is not just one or the other. It's a both. Both they added on, but the more important problem was they missed the whole point to begin with. The reason I think I can say that, I think we can agree on that, is because we've just seen in that short little cursory glance but the Bible itself shows us how the people were trying to add things and tweak things for where they lived. It's just necessary. We have to. Men and women still do that. They have to. The Jews had other questions that they faced as time went on. 
when they started to engage in battles and wars, what do we do? Can we defend our lives on Sabbath day? Some of the enemies of the Jews were able to exploit Sabbath as a wonderful day to attack because they're not going to fight back. And then they had to tweak and say, what do we do in this context? But these add-ons are concrete interpretations and applications of the text. By the time of Jesus, they seem to be a symptom of a deeper mistake. To them, the message of the scriptures was something along the lines of, be careful of the dangerous God, little ears. Be careful, little eyes. Be careful, little hands. Be careful, little grain pluckers. Be careful, this is dangerous. But to Jesus, the main message of the scriptures was to be thankful, child of God. You are loved. And you can be alive with me. What are some of the earliest ways that you learned about God? Were you made to feel nervous and awkward, like you were never good enough to belong to his people? Were you given a picture of God that created more stress and terror than thankfulness and peace? What kind of picture were you given? Some of this you can answer by looking at some of your biggest wrestlings with God throughout your time with Jesus. If you were given that picture of God that created tremendous stress and terror and made you to think that you're never enough, that God wouldn't want somebody like you around, I am deeply sorry. It was a misreading of the text. In some cases, you heard that from folks who really came by that interpretation, honestly. It's just what we were taught. It's what I was taught. I ran as hard as I could from God when I was able to leave my house, and I never looked back because I was given a picture that said, you will never have nice enough clothes. You will never speak with beautiful enough language. You will never eat the right enough foods. You will never be able to be with this God. And so I said, all right, I won't try then. <laughs> you know, I heard what you want to tell me. I hope that you haven't been told that, but I know that many of us have. I'm thankful because you're here now. And we can twist this around and tweak it and move it back on the right trajectory. We can change the way that we read the Bible. We can start. And this is why we have done, in some ways, there's two reasons why we started with Exodus and then went to the gospel. The first one is because those were just the books that I knew the best. And so I start preaching for my first time as a pastor. I'm like, Old Testament, let's do the book I know the best. We start with Joseph and move up. Same with why we chose to do Mark. But as I step back and I think about how God is directing us as a community, it, it just clicks in a different way. And I really believe that he invited us to actually look at these huge stories in his word to bring us back to that basic core message of the Bible. And this is, a, this is not a message, it's not a story that presents a dangerous God who we need to be terrified of and then be exceedingly stressed out about all the time. It's a different story. I'll paraphrase now, or no, I'm going to read directly. 
I proclaim to you, and then I'll paraphrase. I want to proclaim to you today the same thing Jesus said then. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord. Jesus is Lord even over the Sabbath. God's laws and instructions, if I could paraphrase now, were made to help you find life and peace and well-being. His goal is to restore you, to refresh you, and to relieve you from the pain and the suffering of this brutal world, not to see if he can find fault with you. That's easy. <laughs> it's not hard to find fault with, with us. We have plenty of fault to go around, and his law is helpful for showing us how faulty we are, for sure. But the goal is not to breed a community of self-loathing, stressed-out legalists caught in the gloom of oppression. Yes, Sabbath gives refreshment at the same time it exposes sin. But Jesus is the Lord, even over the Sabbath, which means he is the one we follow, first and foremost. And that's the last, we need to put a caveat here so you don't mistake what I'm saying. While we can agree that the Sabbath was and still is a great gift from God, the available evidence that we have in the Old and New Testaments does not speak ever of humans ruling the Sabbath or having the right to overrule Sabbath regulations. It was certainly not believed by early Jews, that everyone was somehow his own Lord over the Sabbath, okay? So this, it's not doing that where anybody has the right to determine what I call appropriate behavior or not. The Sabbath was indeed made for human beings, but only one human being, that would be the Son of Man, Jesus, was Lord over the Sabbath, such that he could declare healing. And other debatable activities like plucking grain as appropriate on that occasion. And this is because I think he is hearkening back to Daniel 7 with that language of son of man. And in that text, it makes evident that only the son of man was given authority over all the earth and all humankind, all kingdoms and human institutions. So as soon as we say, okay, Jesus is setting some, he's breaking some shackles, which is awesome. It's, it's not breaking shackles so whateverism can come in. He's breaking some shackles and saying, I am your God. I am your leader. I am the one for you to pay attention to. And once more, I think Mark drills into our hearts an admiration and a love for Jesus. He's been doing this from the first sentence, hasn't he? He wants us to see God's story come into this amazing moment in Jesus' life, and he's drilling into us admiration and love for Jesus. He is the king. And in our communities in 2016, here in West Coast America, I think we need Jesus just as much as ever. We need Jesus in our communities where we all, each of us, 
helps one another to interpret his word well so we don't miss the point of it and start using a story and a message of reconciliation to create irreconcilable differences between ourselves so we split apart and war against one another. If the Bible is doing that to us, we're not reading it correctly. We're missing the core. We need Jesus in our midst so that this biblical message of love and forgiveness and new life does not distort into a message about how to judge those who are in and how to condemn those who are out. We need Jesus so that if Charles Dickens ever comes to visit our church, probably not going to happen, but if he does, and he were to join the, the community of worshiping Christians at Central Bible on any given Sunday, he might write something like this. Sunday comes, and it brings with it a day of refreshment and restoration and relief. The people who have been toiling hard all the week have been looking forward to the Sabbath because it is to them a day of rest from labor and a day for healthy recreation. Never again becoming a day of grievous tyranny or grinding oppression. The day which their maker has created for them and intended as a blessing is exactly that. A blessing of life to them and to all of the neighbors in their lives. We need Jesus so that we can change the way that we teach our children and so that we can perhaps change our song. Can change our song maybe to be something like this. Oh, be thankful, child of God, you are loved. Oh, be thankful, child of God, you are loved. For King Jesus sets us free, and he loves both you and me. Oh, be thankful, child of God, you are loved. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for loving us. We need your help to interpret your word well. We believe that it is the truth in this world, that it is unchanging, that it is beautiful, and in it we encounter you, your story, your message, your heartbeat. But we all have to engage with this Bible in our own worlds with the experiences that we have been shaped by, and we are all very different. I ask you, Jesus, our King, would you knit us together in love and grace and forgiveness toward one another? Would you spark in our hearts wonder toward your Bible once again? Renew within our community a love for your word that's insatiable, that causes us to form in small communities, groups in our homes with our neighbors and loved ones and others, to think about what you're saying, to learn about how to interpret it well and to live by it. Give us new life each day. And Jesus, through your spirit, would you convict us sharply in our hearts and souls if we're starting to misuse your word. I love you as a pastor here. I speak on behalf of all of the men and women in this room and children who would call you king. We love you. With all of our hearts, we do. 
And please continue to love us the way that you have. Help us to be a church to this town that exemplifies what it means to be your people, filled with reconciliation and love and grace and forgiveness, to not be afraid of those things. Thank you. We love you. We trust you. And we belong to you. Thank you. Amen.